0: Of Oliver, I'm sorry, Edison versus Edison Technologies versus James Oliver. We'll hear from Edison whenever you're ready.
1: Before we begin, Your Honor, may we as the appellants reserve two minutes of our time for rebuttal? 14,
2: 14, and 2.
1: Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Hunter Heck, and I, along with my co-counsel, Ms. Audrey Payne, represent the appellant, Edison Technologies. I will explain why Oliver is an employee under the common law agency test, and my co-counsel will explain why Oliver is barred from, from getting damages in this case. This case is about a group of young, bright individuals with the dream of bringing secure microchip technology to the oil and gas industry. They recruited an old mentor to help ensure that their technology would be impervious to cybersecurity attacks. In their rush to bring a product to market, formalities sometimes fell through the cracks, but what did not was the control and the supervision that they retained over Oliver's work. Accordingly, we ask this court to reverse and hold that Edison owns the copyright in the intellectual property essential to its mission. Starting with the proper formulation of the common law agency test, in Reed, the Supreme Court rejected three rigid tests in favor of the common law agency test, which is flexible, fact-intensive, and determined on a case-by-case basis.
0: To a sort of these sort of flexible, fact-intensive tests um, can be good; they're can be tailored for a particular case, but they're sometimes difficult to administer. Uh, we have. 13 factors, and that's not exclusive there can be others, both sides seem to agree that some factors weigh in favor of Edison and some way in favor of Oliver. How are we supposed to compare these two, all of these different factors in these two sets, if some favor one and some favor the other, and there's no, uh, no, no strict weighing?
1: It's a function of the facts before the court not the result of a rigid rule applied without reference to custom and to context. So those are the keys, custom and context. Want to get to the heart of each of these factors and understand why it's important in assessing the relationship between the hired party and the hiring party. And then from there, you can determine whether a factor is indeterminate, or whether it's going to have more significance in a particular case.
3: Counsel, you said, uh, I think just now, what's important to the hiring and the hired party. Does that suggest that there's sort of a subjective element to the the factors? Are we to look at this as what the parties sort of intended at some subjective level, or do we take a, a reasonable observer perspective as to what these Factors would tell somebody looking at it from from the outside. How do we put those pieces together?
1: The restatement instructs that subjective understanding is one of the many non-exhaustive factors that are relevant in assessing this relationship. Further, the restatement instructs that whenever it comes to considering the subjective understanding between the parties, custom can actually overcome whatever that may look like between the two parties, so that's one element of many. S- diving into the elements, the first that the Supreme Court considers is the right to control. In the current case, Edison exercised more control over Oliver than is required whenever it comes to computer programmers. When we look to other cases that have considered this context, they've required input and general direction. So for example, the second circuit. Is, in- is that
3: the relevant sort of consideration category or comparable category, computer programmers, how to employers generally treat computer programmers? Or does it matter how your client generally treats employees more, uh, cross-cutting, substantively cross-cutting what they do?
1: The, the restatement instructs that the right to control as to the amount of control ordinarily exercised in a particular occupation is of importance. It says that in some contexts, that relationship, that control, may be more attenuated. But in others, there may even be an understanding that the hiring party will exercise no control. So the way the restatement thinks about it is the relationship between the two parties, and it makes those comparisons. So the reason we point to Ames v. Bonelli and JustMed is because those cases have the most legally salient factual similarities. Our friends on the other side point to other cases that involve non-computer programmers And the more relevant distinction to make here and the more relevant comparison is to like customs and like industries. And all of the cases to consider computer programmers have instructed that that is merely, uh, that's limited to input and to general supervision. Well here,
0: wasn't Mr. Oliver just hired for one discrete deliverable? Um, He wasn't hired as a programmer generally, uh, but he was hired for one one deliverable. And isn't that sort of the epitome of an independent contractor, someone who's brought on to deliver one product, and when he delivered that product, he was done. Why shouldn't that be our guiding principle here?
1: I have two responses, Your Honor. First, I think that speaks to the duration factor, which is one of many. And assessing this holistic relationship, it's important to also think about the independent nature of the independent contractor. And when you think about other factors, like right to control, location, source of instrumentalities, the way that Oliver was paid, and the fact that it was in within the regular business of the hiring party, it makes clear that he wasn't functioning independently. Indeed, he was consistently subject to their supervision, which they exercised throughout the relationship. You say the way
3: he was paid, but significant to the way you're paid is withholding of taxes, benefits provided, and those factors seem to me c- to cut very strongly against you, and like the district court, those strike me as important factors. Are, do you see them as important, and do you agree that in the bundle of benefits and payment provided, that those suggest uh, an independent relationship?
4: And can I build on that? Your adversary says that they're aware of only one case, Just Med, where, despite that tax treatment, the court found that the relationship was one of employment uh, or independent contractor, as the case may be. Can you? respond to that, are you aware of any other case?
1: Yes, Your Honor. On page 16 of our brief, we cite SASNET, which is a district court of Massachusetts case in which the court determined that the hired party was an employee despite the treatment of employee and tax benefits not weighing in favor of independent contractor status. And that case also had very legally salient factual similarities. It was a small company. They were rushing to get a product to market and in the scope, in, in that process, some of the formalities slipped through the cracks. And that's the same principle that applies here. We think that the failure to provide tax treatments and employee benefits speaks more to the fact that these are creative compensation arrangements because this is a startup, not because of the way they thought about the employer-employee relationship.
4: So I think they said the only circuit case they're aware of is Med. Are you aware of a circuit decision that goes that direction or just that district court case?
1: No, Your Honor. Just Med is the case in our research that we've found so far. But and, again.
4: And let's focus on the distinctions between Just Med and this case. And Just Med, my, my impression is it was startup. You would argue that you're also a startup and therefore akin to Just Med where things were sort of disorganized. But here, the company had an established practice and a manner of treating you know, salary or employees and took a different approach with with respect to Mr. Oliver. So doesn't that distinguish this case? In other words, this is not a fly-by-night operation where they haven't yet figured out how they're going to treat employees versus independent contractors. They have an established policy, and applying that policy, they treated Mr. Oliver in one particular way. Why isn't that nearly dispositive, if not dispositive?
1: So I want to push back just slightly on that formulation of the record because it actually reflects the Edison bis- distinguished between salaried employees and non-salaried employees and there's no evidence that Oliver was treated differently and we acknowledge that this may seem a bit like an idiosyncratic type of policy but the record has no evidence that Oliver was treated differently than others who may have fallen on that side of the policy and again as the just Fed Court warned, there's danger in placing too much emphasis on these formalistic factors. One, because they are never mentioned in the restatement. They're the only two factors that the Supreme Court laid out and Reed that have no basis in the restatement to which can, they look.
4: Can I push and, back on your pushback? You say there's nothing in the record, but you know, the lower court says, and I think this was a stipulated fact, that Edison could not provide health, unemployment, and life insurance per company policy, those benefits are available only for salaried workers. So clearly Edison does distinguish between salaried workers and and non-salaried workers, and presumably employees and independent contractors. Why is that not a significant fact here against you?
1: We agree that the distinction is between salaried employee, it's between salaried and non-salaried people, but it's not independent contractors versus employees. There very well, well may have been another worker who was brought in and paid on an hourly basis like like Oliver was which does weigh in favor of finding an employee under the method of compensation analysis. And
4: if the record is silent isn't that doesn't that cut against you because the burden is yours in this context?
1: We're simply saying that this factor shouldn't be afforded the same weight that the district afforded it below. Of course the burden of persuasion is on us, but when facts are indeterminate as to a particular factor, the, this court should treat it as irrelevant to the analysis. And as I was stating, there's danger in placing too much weight on these two factors. One, because it's it's non-exhaustive factors relevant to this analysis. But further, the Supreme Court explicitly rejected a test looked only to the formalist salaried employees in a company as establishing whether someone's an employee. Another factor, a couple of the other factors that they allege are in our favor, also were influenced and should be afforded less weight given the custom of the industry. I think first, with skill, computer programming is a skill, but the restatement instructs that whenever the skill is part of a company's regular business, that it shouldn't be afforded the same way and should instead lean more in favor of employee status.
3: This is a a microchip business, not a computer security business. So that seems to be a fact that cuts the other way, other than generally being in the area of technology.
1: Edison was in the business of providing secure microchip technology to oil and gas companies. It was necessarily tied up in their mission. Indeed. Well,
3: everybody's in the business of providing secure whatever it is that they provide, isn't it? I mean, that seems to me like you're sort of swallowing the rule and making anybody who does work for a particular company then integral to the company. What, what is it about microchips and security?
4: And my, my impression here, correct me if I'm wrong, is Mr. Wagner developed a microchip, realized that it was a potential gold mine, that he could sell it to the oil and gas industry, but they expressed reservations because of the cybersecurity needs, so he essentially went and sought out Mr. Oliver at that point, which suggests that it wasn't a core part of the business. It was really just necessary to, you know, fulfill the, the core of the business.
1: So the record reflects that the companies refuse to purchase these microchips without stronger, without stronger software and without stronger cybersecurity. Accordingly, Citadel is a but-for cause of both the functionality and the marketability of these microchips. These, these companies were concerned that foreign countries and cyber attackers were going to hack into Edison's systems and compromise the design of the chips and ultimately undermine the oil and gas
0: industry. When did Edison undertake to sell this sort of program, right? They were in the business of secure chips, but then they moved to the business of selling the security itself, right? When did that <coughs> happen?
1: That happened after the time of Oliver's employment at Edison Technologies. Accordingly, that's outside of the time. Well, is it the,
0: fair then to say that, that they were in that business when he created this program?
1: That they were in the business of selling them? Mm-hmm. We'd accept that, Your Honor. We think that eventually if they went into selling that, you could consider this as part of the regular business of the hiring
0: party. But they weren't in that business at the time, right? They were in the business of securing what they already had it was one total package, one product?
1: Sure, Your Honor. We think that without Citadel, there is no microchip technology. You can distinguish Citadel and later sell it, and that be part of the core, part of the company, but at the time of that relationship, it was necessarily tied up into their central mission as the Sassnet Court thinks about this. With the time remaining, I do briefly want to touch on the many factors that are in our favor Again, right to control, custom, source of instrumentalities, location, regular business of the hiring party, method of payment, the fact that Edison is in business, and the factors that may otherwise weigh against finding that Oliver is Edison's employee should be afforded less weight because Edison Technologies has non-traditional working arrangements that sometimes lead to informalities that don't- Can I ask you
0: about that? In your brief, you rely on the idea that tech startups, they have kind of different relationships with employees. You're over time, but I'll let you answer my question. Uh, And you say that's a reason why we shouldn't apply the the normal test, that uh, the employee-employer relationship just looks different in a tech startup. But why shouldn't we just infer instead that in the tech startup context, these companies are just more likely to hire independent contractors because they have smaller staffs who can't do everything. Why does that uh, unique context cut in your favor instead of in favor of finding an independent contractor relationship?
1: Sure, so again, Within the rest of the factors and the many that count in favor of finding the Oliver's an employee that I listed it's within that context as well that they that you think about whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor mm-hmm. there very well could be a startup that hires exclusively independent contractors but they wouldn't those those independent contractors probably wouldn't be working at the company's headquarters probably wouldn't be using their instrumentalities probably would be paid only a lump sum salary that is dependent upon the completion of the project. And so it's still the factors that you consider within that analysis, but for some of the specific factors that may have more significance to traditional businesses, they just don't have the same weight in this context. And for those reasons, we respectfully ask this court to reverse and hold that Edison Technologies owns the copyright in Citadel. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel. <coughs> Counsel, whenever you're ready.
5: Yes, Your Honor. Permission to proceed? Yes. Good evening, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Aquila Malyakul for the plaintiff appellee, Mr. James Oliver. If I were to hire someone to do a single project, pay them only for the two months it takes to do that project, and then over the course of that time refuse to extend to them the employee benefits and tax treatment that I do give my normal employees, at the end of that time, can I turn around and say they were an employee the entire time and not an independent contractor? The district court correctly held that the answer to that question is no, and we're
4: asking this court to affirm. So let me ask you a question. The Supreme Court in Reed says the extent of control that the hiring party exercises is not dispositive. It also makes very clear that no one factor uh, in the 13 factor test that it articulates is quote unquote determinative. the district court in this case, however, literally refers to the right to control, and I'm not sure it distinguishes between control and right to control, but that's a separate issue we'll get to shortly. Yeah, literally refers to it as dispositive of the analysis. Why doesn't that alone suggest that the lower court erred and needs to take another look at this? For two reasons, Your Honor. First, the Supreme Court's
5: language, when it laid out those 13 factors in Reed, said that, yes, none of these factors are dispositive. But I think by doing so, it meant that, for example, the issue of control is not going to be dispositive in every single case. If it cuts one way or the other, it's not always going to tell us which way the court should take the decision. That's not the same thing as saying that in any given case, one factor might be weighed, depending on those particular facts, highly enough as to control the question.
4: And we think that's all the lower court in this court. It doesn't say no no one factor is determinative in every case. It says no one factor is determinative. It suggests it's a thirteen factor, you know, toss it up in the air test that no one factor should drive the, the result. But the district court here literally refers to one factor as dispositive.
5: Well, Your Honor, first in Reed, and then several years later, in Nationwide Mutual Insurance v. Darden, the Supreme Court made sure that it's not just tallying 13 factors, but depending on the facts of a given case, some might be weighed more heavily than others. And we think that's all the district court did in this case, weighed the factor of control particularly highly. But to my second point What on would that be issue, a case
3: in which control wouldn't weigh heavily? What would be a set of facts that would make that not a significant factor. It's hard. It's a little hard for me to see, and I can understand the district court's inclination to put weight on that, but it is difficult to figure out how that's consistent with the Supreme Court's express construction.
5: Const- I'm sorry, Your Honor. Are you asking to provide an example? What would
3: be the- an example? What would be, if you can, a, a scenario in which right of control cuts one way, but Oh, the relevant factors make that not significant in the agency assessment.
5: Certainly, Your Honor. Reed itself actually is one such case. In that case, the Supreme Court found that the factor of control favored an employee finding because the party in that case, for example, was hired to make a sculpture, and the hiring party controlled things like the title of the sculpture, what the sculpture was gonna be, its scale, the material you should use, and so on. But despite finding that control favored a finding of employee status, The court ultimately found that the sculptor was an independent contractor weighing the remainder factors such as tax treatment, the provision of additional projects. So I think that's a a clear example to go to your question. But even, Judge Furman, to get to your question, if this court does find that the lower court erred by focusing on the issue of control, the standard review in this case is de novo. And I think this court can still find and affirm the lower court's decision by finding that they reached the right destination, even if they took
4: a crooked road to get there. All right, and let me get to the other thing that I hinted at. Didn't the court uh, confuse the right to control with control? In other words, I would grant you that Edison, in this case, exercised relatively little control over Mr. Oliver's creation of Citadel, but that's distinct from the concept of the right to control, which is to say if Ms. Miller had at any point wanted to give more direction, had wanted to specify what level of encryption to use, the record suggests I, I would... Proffer that, that Edison had that right. Isn't that the critical question as opposed to whether the, the right is exercised? Right, One has the right to vote. That doesn't mean one has to vote.
5: No, Your Honor, I don't think that's the critical question for two reasons. First, the right to control test was explicitly considered by the Supreme Court drawing on the Second Circuit case of Alden Accessories and discarded as the inappropriate way of looking at the issue well, of
4: right to control. Didn't they reject the right to control the product test as distinct from the right to control the, the employee or potential punitive employee? That's a distinct question. Yes,
5: Your Honor. They were looking at the manner of means. But that actually goes to my second point. The Supreme Court, when considering the various other types of tests, explicitly rejected a version of control that set the bar at merely the general direction or supervision of a product, noting, for example, that such a bar would be so low that any hiring party could meet it, regardless of whether or not the party being hired was an independent contractor or an employee. And so we think, in this case, to just look at the fact that Edison allowed Mr. Oliver to have a free hand when it came to creating Citadel is more so focusing on what the Second Circuit termed in Horror Rink the big-picture approval authority that Edison and companies like it maintained. That sort of big-picture approval authority is insufficient for the control test. Instead we look to the substance of the control, what the Second Circuit termed as comprehensive control. And there we think that Edison fails to meet the requirement for control. Mr. Oliver was able to access the building whenever he wanted. He came in largely on nights and weekends when no one else was around. His designated supervisor, for lack of a better term, didn't give him any feedback either on his progress or, I think importantly,
4: on this. Let me pause for a moment. You said for lack of a better term. That's the term that Edison gave Ms. Miller, no? I yes, Did not Mr. Wagner appoint Ms. Miller as Mr. Oliver's supervisor?
5: Certainly. The point I was trying to make is that there was actually very little supervising going on. Because Ms. Miller was, as the record notes, rarely in the building at the same time as Mr. Oliver, when he was providing her timesheets that she checked off, the record notes on page 5, she gave no feedback either on his progress or on anything regarding the vision Edison had for the program of Citadel itself, leaving those facts entirely up to Mr. Oliver to create Citadel as he saw fit.
4: Can I ask you to focus for a moment on the conference, the date of the conference? Um, Mr. Oliver represented Edison at the conference. He wore uh, a, an Edison-branded polo shirt. He had business cards that identified him as uh, affiliated, if not employed, employed by Edison. Um, he sat at Edison's booth. He held himself out, in essence, as an Edison employee. If we were to focus solely on that one day, take my hypothetical for a moment, do you agree that the employment test would cut in favor of employment? If we cut out the context as to how he ended up at that conference, yes, Your Honor. All right, and can you cite any authority for the proposition that one can be an employee on one day but an independent contractor on on another? No, Your Honor, I can't, but
5: that's because the context shows that on the day in question when he was at that conference, he was not an employee. I think this goes to specifically the factor of whether or not, as Reed points out, you can assign someone additional projects. If you can, it's more likely they're an employee. If not, they're likely an independent contractor who's being brought on for a project-by-project basis. And the record is clear on this. Mr. Oliver was brought on for a single project to create Citadel. He was paid only for the time that he was going to take to create Citadel. And as soon as he was done, his relationship with the company ended. Now, to Your Honor's point, he certainly did elect to go to this conference. And I understand why opposing counsel points to that as something suggesting he was an employee. But again, I think the facts and the context complicate that picture. The right to assign additional projects inquiry looks to whether or not the company has the right to demand something of an employee. Not whether an individual volunteers to do additional work. And within the record... But,
3: I mean, it's consistent with an employee relationship, isn't it, for the supervisor to say, hey, will you go to this conference? We need somebody to represent the company. And the employee, depending on schedule or demands or the like, might say yes or or no. So it seems to me that that is consistent with being an employee. And what it tells us is that he had a responsibility beyond just the production of Citadel.
5: I don't think actually, Your Honor, that that tells us that he had such a responsibility. And I think it tells us that he doesn't have the responsibility first, because it's not as if Edison came out and said, hey, we want you to do this. That was a direct outgrowth of his offer on the front end to talk to them about additional parts of their cybersecurity portfolio. And when, as Edison then went on to ask him to do this additional project, explicitly as the record quotes from that email, they said they wanted to take him up on, quote, his offer to do additional aspects to deal with their cybersecurity portfolio. The the Sixth Circuit and High Tech Incorporated considered a similar question, and ultimately held that the group of individuals there were independent contractors, despite the fact that in the past, they had done other discrete projects for the hiring party. And I think that clearly goes to the point that the, the issue isn't whether or not you do additional work, it's whether the reason you do additional work is because the hiring party has the right to demand that you do so. I don't think the record establishes that that's the case at all here. Another factor that we believe cuts in our favor, which Judge Nathan, you touched on when my friend was up here, is the issue of first, tax treatment, and second, employee benefits. And we believe those clearly support a finding of independent contract. Can I ask you
0: about that? Because it does seem important in many of the cases um, in distinguishing the employee from the independent contractor, but shouldn't we view that in the context of the particular company? For example, if a company gave no employees benefits, right, we're a startup, we just can't afford to give anyone health insurance or any sorts of benefits, you wouldn't say they have no employees, would you? No, Your Honor. So we have to look at the context to understand, well, how does this employer distinguish between employees and independent contractors, and what's the import of having no benefits or being paid in a certain way not having a certain tax treatment for this employer and the case seems to be much weaker for you on that doesn't it
5: no your honor i don't think it does in fact i think by specifically looking at the facts of edison the company you actually look to see that there's a there's a disparate treatment between mr oliver and everybody else that worked at edison well they
0: say that they distinguish between salaried employees and non salaried presumably hourly workers um in the way that they get benefits and the tax treatment et cetera, why isn't why shouldn't we look to that context to understand uh, who's an employee of which which stripe right he might be an employee of a different variety but why does that mean he's not an employee at all
5: because your honor i think the record only talks about two classes of employees and it's not salaried employees and non-salaried employees it's salaried employees and mr oliver uh, remember this is a company of a total of 12 people and the record establishes that certain benefits and tax treatment were retained for salaried workers of that group of 12, and then the only person that the record suggests was treated differently was Mr. Oliver. Now, opposing counsel, in your question as well, posits the possible existence of non-salaried employees, but those employees don't exist anywhere within the record, and to the extent that we should be drawing inferences from the gaps the record provides, The burden of proof lies on Edison as the party claiming the statutory exception to the default rule of ownership. Those were facts that should have been developed by Edison at the lower court.
0: But if we're going to grant summary judgment in your favor, don't we have to construe all inferences in favor of Edison? And the fact that they have a policy that distinguishes between salaried and unsalaried workers suggests they have or envision the future where they will have non-salaried employees don't we have to give them the benefit of that inference that the policy suggests there are employees who aren't salaried?
5: Your Honor, you're you're certainly correct that there is a tension between the posture that comes with the summary judgment ruling, but we would contend that the backdrop of Edison claiming the statutory exception still leaves the burden ultimately at their doorstep to establish whether or not they meet the requirements of Reed to be an independent, excuse me, to be an employee instead of an independent contractor. But even if, Your Honor, were to decide to construe facts in favor of Edison, such as the the non-salaried employee point, that still leaves the fact that tax treatment and the various benefits here were not offered to Mr. Edison, precisely because they treated him as differently in kind. And courts have routinely considered that the factors of tax treatment and employee benefits are particularly important because they demand companies to put their money where their mouth is, to actually offer financially the health insurance, life insurance, and additional parts that come with being an employee and
3: and so you, and related to that just on the other side you, you're diminishing the significance I think of an hourly wage versus a lump sum payment and I think it's also the case and you, I agree with you on <laughs> tax treatment and benefits and the like but but we do typically see in the independent uh, contractor context a, a lump sum payment that we don't have here.
5: We certainly do, Your Honor, but as the Eighth Circuit noted in Larral v. Friends of Minnesota, Symphonia, independent contractors are all the time hired on an hourly basis, such as, for example, plumbers. And, and I think there exists maybe did you have a question, no, to I think there exist three categories here. On, on one side, there's the lump sum payment, which clearly would favor independent contractor status. On the other, there's being a salaried employee, which I think would clearly favor employee status. And in the middle exists this hourly payment. And to figure out which side of the ledger it weighs on, we have to look at the context. And the context here tells us.
4: But he was the context also includes perks that were given only to employees, like the. gym and the Uber rides after 9 p.m. It includes the employee holiday party that Mr. Oliver was invited to, and doesn't that all suggest a subjective understanding of Mr. Oliver as an employee? I see that I'm out of time. Your Honor, permission
5: to extend time to answer that question?
0: Yes, of course.
5: I certainly agree that there are additional things Edison did, such as invite Mr. Oliver to the holiday party. But that doesn't really tell this court much, I think, ultimately on the question of whether or not they thought he was an independent contractor. He was working in the building around Christmas. I think it's a perfectly rational thing to invite him to the company holiday party. And when this court decides the subjective intent of Edison, whether they viewed Mr. Oliver as an employee, they have to weigh the various factors in this case. And on one hand, yes, you do have the fact they invited him to the holiday party, so they sent an email saying he was a team player. But on the other hand, they refused to give him health insurance. And I think that that far more greatly indicates that he was treated as an employee and not as an independent contractor. Uh, Excuse me, he was treated as an independent contractor, I misspoke, and not uh, an employee.
3: They were Uh, prepared to rest their case.
5: Yes. (laughs) I wish I had a time machine, Your Honor. Uh, If there are no further questions, we ask that this court affirms. Thank you.
2: Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Audrey Payne, Counsel for Edison Technologies. Even if this Court holds today that Oliver owns the copyright in Citadel, he has another hurdle to clear. He seeks damages for his action, and he wishes to recover for alleged infringements that occurred at a minimum of five years before he filed his suit. The Copyright Act statute of limitations forbids this recovery. We urge this Court to reverse for two reasons. First, The incident of injury rule, and not the discovery rule, is the proper accrual rule for Section 507B of the Copyright Act. Under that reading, Oliver's claims are not timely. Second, and in the alternative, even if this court applies the discovery rule, Section 507B operates as a three-year look-back limitations period that restricts damages recovery for infringements within three years of the suit's filing. Under either reading, Oliver cannot recover damages. First, the matter of accrual. This court has no binding precedent deciding between the discovery rule and the instant of injury rule for the Copyright Act statute of limitations. As such, this court gets to look to the text, the history, the purposes of Section 507B, and Supreme Court guidance about the proper method of interpreting federal statutes of limitations. Beginning with Rodkitsky v. Clinton, the Supreme Court gave a two-part framework to give guidance about how to interpret the language of federal statutes of limitations. It says, first, if the language is unambiguous, follow what it says. We don't have that, do we? We do not. And step two would address the question in this particular case. Step two suggests that if there are, quote, two plausible constructions of a statute, the court will generally adopt the presumption that the instant of injury rule applies.
4: But in Rutkiski, the court found that it was unambiguous, so isn't that dicta?
2: The court still applied this two-part test. Well, it did they never, stop. They
4: never got to the second part. In other words, they ended with the first part, and they therefore it was just dicta.
2: The court stopped at step one. Yes, Your Honor, we agree with that statement. However, step two is unsurprising because it is a mere description of generally how federal statutes of limitations have been interpreted since the 1830s.
0: Well, let's talk about this particular statute before we jump to assumptions about how all statutes of limitations work. This statute has a criminal statute of limitations and a civil statute of limitations, and they're different. Right, the criminal one says that the accrual is after the cause of action arose. So it has to be, the suit has to be commenced within five years after the cause of action arose. But for the civil action, Congress chose a different term and said within three years after the claim accrued. Now I know that these were written at different times, but Congress had the criminal one first. So when it wrote the civil statute of limitations, it could have just copied that and said three years after the cause of action arose. And that would be pretty clear uh, that the injury is the relevant question, right, that time when the injury occurred. But there's different language, so help me navigate why we should read the different language to mean exactly the same thing.
2: In the mid-20th century, a crew had a common meaning. The Supreme Court in United States versus Lindsay says, quote, in common parlance, a right accrues when it comes into existence. Similar cases adu- interpreting language from statutes uh, A counsel about- just
3: You said a right accrues. The question here is when does a claim accrue? And isn't that a significant difference, making the precedent that you're pointing to not directly responsive to the, to the issue?
2: Mid-century treatises in the early and mid 20th century similarly interpreted accrue to mean when a right comes into existence, when a plaintiff can file suit and obtain relief, or as the court has continued to reaffirm as the standard rule, such as its description in Petrella and Bay Area Laundry, for example, when a plaintiff has a complete and present cause of action. That but points to But that's exactly
0: the, what Part A says, criminal proceedings that has to be commenced within five years after the cause of action arose. That's a much clearer way to say it. If, if crew really means that, then why didn't Congress just say that like they said in Part A?
2: The Supreme, can you repeat the question?
0: So you're saying accrue at the time that this provision was written, accrue means when the cause of action arose. And I'm asking, why didn't they just say when the cause of action arose? Because that's what Congress said in Part A for the criminal statute of limitations. Why did they use a different term in Part B for the civil cause of action?
2: Your Honor, the legislative history when discussing the civil statute of limitations doesn't suggest particular language descriptions on the differences between those two words, and we wouldn't be surprised to see that if they thought of arose and accrue as having similar meanings in that particular case. And when we look to the legislative history of this particular statute, it suggests that Congress was primarily concerned with certainty and uniformity interests for intellectual property but defense. Don't,
4: don't we generally apply, I mean, I think what's at the root of my colleague's question is that we generally apply a presumption that if Congress uses one word in one section and a different word in another section, that it does so for a, a good reason and it must mean something different. You're suggesting that we read section A and section B in the exact same way, notwithstanding the fact that they have a different language, so I think that's that's at the heart of it. How do you address that presumption, that background presumption?
2: Your Honor, the Supreme Court has said that that presumption <coughs> is at most a tiebreaker. And when the evidence, both in the legislative history and the text suggests that they had similar meanings, then it is much weaker in that context. And in fact, the Supreme Court and Petrella used a rose and a crew to mean the same thing. They equated them together when describing the incident of injury rule. But looking to the history of these two particular accrual rules is also evidence that Congress was not thinking about the discovery rule as it exists today. The discovery rule, that is suggested by opposing counsel as having a common law background, did not exist as we see it in its modern form. There were exceptions in equitable tolling doctrines for things like fraudulent concealment, which required Fraudulent conduct to conceal that harm above and beyond standard infringement. Did
4: did Uri versus Thompson not hold that a crew meant discovery?
2: That is the only case prior to 1957 in the Supreme Court interpreting a statute to adopt the discovery rule, but but it suggests
4: that the meaning wasn't quite as clear cut as you're suggesting, does it not?
2: Two responses to that. First, the Supreme Court wasn't looking at the particular text; it adopted a humanitarian understanding of it, because the nature of the injury in that particular context was not just unknowable at the time, but, quote, inherently unknowable in retrospect. Silicosis, you cannot find the incident of injury in that particular time because it is a progressive disease. And Your Honors, if this court is not convinced by the specific statutory language and arguments, Rokitsky provides guidance to lean in favor of the instant of injury rule. There is not evidence to suggest Congress was concerned about this larger, presumed start date version of the discovery rule in this particular context. And especially when it was concerned about uniformity in the copyright bar and for intellectual property defendants, that suggests that they preferred a fixed uniform application of a statute of limitations, not an accrual rule that applied as uncertainly as the discovery rule does here.
4: Can I ask you a question about the the time period that we should look at for the meaning of the words here? This provision dates to 1957. I think the criminal provision dates to 1909 or thereabouts. But as Justice Ginsburg put it in Petrella, the Copyright Act was pervasively revised in 1976, and both of those provisions were left in place. Is it not the meaning of the terms in 1976, therefore, that we should be looking at? Can you shed any light on on that?
2: 1976 is absolutely the modern version of the discovery rule, but the language was not substantively changed in that particular act. Both the criminal and the civil provisions maintained their language and were imported into the new version of the Copyright Act. And even at that time, the Supreme Court only had one or two cases adopting this version of the discovery rule. When in doubt, a following Rokitsky, this court should adopt the instant of injury rule. In the alternative, even if this court decides to apply the discovery rule in this particular context, the Supreme Court has interpreted Section 507B to have a three-year limit on retrospective damages. Infringements that occur more than three years prior to the suit's filing are unavailable to the plaintiff. To understand why that is binding on this court, we need to look to the reasoning in Petrella to see why the court relied on that analysis to obtain its whole Can
4: you just, as a matter of first principles, put aside the language in Petrella, does it make any sense if the discovery rule applies, does it make any sense to both apply the discovery rule and then apply a three-year cutoff that would seem to take away, you know, to give with one hand what you take away with another? In other words, if we're essentially adopting a rule that favors the author or uh, writer and allows for them to bring suit within three years of their discovery, but then say, you know, you can't collect for anything prior to three years, it seems that it sort of undermines the entire point. Does it not?
2: As a pure matter of policy, there is still a balancing act that can occur under this understanding of the discovery rule and the damages limit operating together. It may prevent recovery for damages in that particular context, and in some cases, as the Ninth and 11th Circuits have pointed out, that that might seem a little bit inconsistent, but what that does is balance the uniformity and the certainty for intellectual property defendants in protecting their investments and their their profits in these intellectual property interests, while simultaneously providing injunctions and other forms of equitable relief for the plaintiffs into the future. But you're
4: you're making an argument that we should apply the text in plain meaning. 507B says nothing about damages. It refers to the commencement of a a lawsuit of a claim. 504, by contrast, does speak to damages and suggests that a a prevailing plaintiff can recover essentially their actual damages without limitation. So why why does it make sense to read into the statute a three-year bar on damages when it's not clearly present in 507B?
2: Our argument primarily rests in the fact that the Supreme Court has said so. Justice Ginsburg is a careful legal scholar and author, and she pervasively, throughout the Petrella opinion, characterized Section 507B as a three-year look-back period.
0: Wasn't that just a natural consequence of her assumption that we're applying an instant of injury rule? I mean, the court dropped a footnote saying, every court of appeals to talk about it has applied a discovery rule. And then they looked at that, right? They didn't, and they've left that question open. They've explicitly left that question open in opinion since then, and even in reformulating the question most recently, right? They have left open the question of whether discovery rule applies. In Petrella, they just talked about the incident of injury rule, and a natural consequence of applying that rule was all of this language in the opinion about you file the suit and look back three years and only Damages within that past three years. Only injuries within that past three years can be uh, compensated. Is, wasn't it just a natural consequence of looking at that rule, it's, or you seem to think it has independent, uh, some sort of independent basis?
2: Two responses to that. First. Justice Ginsburg does not limit her discussion of Section 507B as a look-back period to circumstances where she's looking at the particular case. In fact, if you look at the top of page 670 in the Petrella opinion, Before even discussing the instant of injury and the discovery rule, before looking at footnote four, she states that in 1957, Congress addressed the matter and filled the hole. It adopted, it prescribed a three-year look back limitations period. I thought at the
0: beginning of the opinion, she says, it is undisputed that 507B bars relief of any kind for conduct occurring before the three-year limitations period, and then they go on to address the actual question at issue in the case. We don't normally rely on points of law that are undisputed between the parties as a premise for the court's opinion that's not the holding is it
2: the holding is specifically discussing latches and whether or not it can preclude an otherwise timely claim so that why
0: should we rely on this uh, this assumption <coughs> that everybody agreed on at the beginning of the case as a why should we rely on that as the deciding factor here
2: the holding if i may have leave i think my time's going to run out this question the holding itself is not limited to circumstances where the instant injury and the discovery rule applies and in fact the court primarily bases its reasoning on why latches is unnecessary because section 507b's limitations period operates to provide an adequate alternative to defendants to protect their profits As the court says in Petrella, they will miss out on damages prior to the three-year look-back, but her right to prospective injunctive relief should, in most cases, remain unaltered. Under either reading, we urge this court to reverse.
6: May I proceed? Yes. Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court. Good evening, Your Honors. Sean Gray for Mr. Oliver. This is a case about consistency. Consistency between a statute's text and its purpose, consistency among the courts of appeals, and consistency with Supreme Court precedent. The district court correctly decided, first, that Mr. Oliver's claim was timely under Section 507B. And second, that that provision did not impose a three-year limit on damages. This court should affirm for two reasons. First is because the discovery rule is consistent with the Copyright Act and with Supreme Court precedent. Second is because the damages bar is consistent with neither. Turning to my first point, every circuit to consider the question, 11 in total, is held that a copyright infringement claim under the civil provision begins to accrue only at the first reasonable moment of discovery. This consensus is no accident. It is well grounded in the, te- in the act's text, structure, and purpose, and it is supported by its history as well. All right, but
4: 11 circuit courts aside, we're bound by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in Rotkiski, number one, refers to the discovery rule as bad wine of recent vintage. It seems odd for us to adopt that rule when that's the way the Supreme Court views it. And more significantly, the court prescribes a two-step approach to analyzing whether a statute, you know, I mean, what, what a statute of limitations means. Step one, is it? Unambiguous if so that's the end analysis step two if it's ambiguous then you apply the incident of injury rule Are we not does that not dictate the result here? Is nope. it not that clear?
6: I'm sorry. yeah. No, your honor uh, rodkiski does not dictate the result here because ultimately that second step that you're talking about is not is not binding on this court because as you pointed out earlier the court didn't go beyond that first step the well, first but the the court adopted
4: that second step, quoting from its prior decision in Graham County Soil and Water Conservation, which itself quoted from Bay Bay Area Laundry and Dry Cleaning, which is to say, it may well have been dicta in Rotkiski, but it is a rule of
6: longstanding origin, which is to say, isn't it binding on us? Your Honor, even if it is binding on us, as Edison has explained, it's only a descriptive presumption. And that's one that is overcome when text, structure, history, and purpose all point towards discovery.
4: And I take it you would concede that it is a question under that second prong. In other words, there is ambiguity here, correct? There is ambiguity here. Okay, so explain why text, structure, history, call for the result that you're
6: asking us to reach. Certainly, Your Honor. Uh, The textual argument is threefold. First is that the word crude permits a discovery rule. Second is that the structure of 507 compels the discovery rule. And third is that Congress legislated against a backdrop in 1957 of common law principles and Supreme Court precedent that protected plaintiffs against hidden injury. First, turning to the text, specifically the claim accru- the word accrued, the Supreme Court had in several instances held that the discovery rule applied to cases where the statute used the word accrued. I'm thinking here of Urey, of Gluss, and of Walker. Likewise, Black's Law Dictionary, as the Ninth Circuit made clear in STARS, uses a a discovery rule example to determine what exactly accrual means. The plaintiff's cause of action for silicosis did not accrue until the plaintiff knew or had reason to know of the disease. So in that sense, in 1957, it was clear that accrual had two meanings. It was a term of art that was dependent on the context. And that context in this case makes clear that the discovery rule is the appropriate rule. As we've discussed, section 507a establishes that criminal proceedings must be brought within five years after the cause of action arose. In, 19, in 1951, the Supreme Court in the McMahon case held that very similar language in the statute of limitations in the Admiralty Act, specifically the verb arise, that that necessarily embodied an injury rule. So only six years later, when Congress was legislating, it faced a choice. It could use the word arose again to imbue an injury rule, or it could use a different word to impose a different rule. It chose to use a different word. And as the Third Circuit explained in William A. Graham, in order to give both of these rules effect and to give both of these words effect, the discovery rule is the necessary outcome for Section 507B. This is bolstered by both the legislative history and by the backdrop of precedent that Congress or that Congress was legislating against. And how do you
4: square that with the Supreme Court's observation in Gabelli that since the, 19- the 1830s, the Supreme Court has consistently reaffirm that Congress legislates against the standard rule that
6: accrual is essentially the moment of injury? Your Honor, we recognize that Gabelli is a challenging case for us. But ultimately, there's two reasons that it isn't dispositive on this question. First is that it considered the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, which the government, not a private plaintiff uh, harmed by a hidden injury, enforced. So after looking at the text, the court considered in Gabelli whether the discovery rule was appropriate as a matter of policy. And it held that the government doesn't deserve that same benefits as it doesn't deserve the same benefits as plaintiffs hurt by hidden injuries. And second, the structural considerations here in Section 507A and Section 507B that wasn't present in the statute of Cabelli. So for those reasons, the context was quite different.
0: Doesn't the the hidden injury context cut against you? Some of these examples have to do with a a latent uh, problem, right? That couldn't immediately be discovered, but When we're talking about copyright infringement, we're talking about publishing a work to other parties. And we expect the owners of copyrights to be vigilant in defending their rights to their works. We expect them to be looking for infringement and sort of patrolling. These are not things that are done in secret that no one can discover. Doesn't that cut against the need for a uh, a discovery rule that's beyond fraud here?
6: No, Your Honor, I don't believe it does, and I think that you're gesturing to the idea that in large part, there are two types of copyrightable works. There's those that are released for public consumption. I'm thinking here of a song or a movie. When you release those, it's to get out into the public, and it's to get to the top 100 or to the top of the billboards, but that's not the case for, for, for Citadel. It was sold to 43 companies, and there's no indication that it was advertised publicly, and Edison has already conceded that the record at page 21, note 13, that Mr. Oliver reasonably did not discover the infringement until the date that he did, on January 9th, 2023. And this is this goes to then Judge Ginsburg's point in the Connors case, that the discovery rule only does work when the injury is not the sort that can readily be discovered when it occurs.
0: So the discovery rule will- well, that makes it sound like the discovery rule doesn't, you know, it's kind of a backstop. It's not always the rule that's going to govern, but Your argument seems to presume that this is the sort of injury that will never be discovered as soon as it is inflicted. It's not like a physical injury. It's not like a car accident, right, where you immediately know you've been injured. Um, It seems like plaintiffs will always be relying on the date they discovered or reasonably should have discovered uh, the infringement, in which case this sort of exception is taking over.
6: Your Honor, just so I understand your question, are you asking about kind of the work that the reasonably should have done standard does in the analysis?
0: Well, it seemed like you were, you were talking about uh, then Judge Ginsburg's discussion on the DC circuit. that Well, the discovery rule only does work in this certain limited context. But in copyright context here in this statute, the discovery rule would, would cover the field. There's very rarely going to be someone who knows the moment of infringement that they've been injured. Well, Your Honor,
6: that's where that reasonably should have known circumstance comes into play. If I infringe on a song and I publish it on iTunes, given technology nowadays, it's going to be quite quick that the that the party whose copyright was infringed is going to know about it instantly. And so in most copyright cases, the discovery rule is not going to do a large amount of work. It really will only do work in those cases where injury cannot be readily discerned, like this case, as Edison has already conceived.
4: Oh. Judge Ginsburg is all well and good. We're not bound by her, but we are bound by Justice Ginsburg. And in that regard, can you address Petrella? Because Petrella says on page 670, and I quote, a copyright claim thus arises or quote unquote accrues when an infringing act occurs. Full stop. Doesn't that decide this case and don't you
6: lose? No, Your Honor. Because if you go to the end of that paragraph, look only to Justice Ginsburg' note on note four which says that although we have not passed on the question, nine courts of appeals have adopted, as an alternative to the incident of injury rule, a discovery rule. I will grant you that,
4: but nor does she say we're not reaching the issue. She simply notes that nine courts of appeals have reached a different conclusion, but why shouldn't we actually read that language, that clear, clear and definitive sentence, to be that she disagrees with
6: those nine courts and this is the rule, full stop. Because your honor, the first part of that sentence says that just er, says that they have not passed on the question until think,
3: that moment in the sentence before the footnote.
6: I'm sorry. Your honor, I just, until that
3: moment in the sentence where she says it's an incident of injury rule, and then drops a footnote. Essentially, if I could rephrase it slightly, we have not previously passed, and note that the circuits go the other way. Well, your honor, that that and doesn't and undo, does it? The what's happening textually in in the language above the line.
4: And on the same point, the court knows how to say, we assume without deciding X, right? It often does that in cases where it acknowledges there's an open question and it's not actually addressing that. Here it doesn't use that language, it simply notes that nine courts have gone the other way, but as a footnote, as my colleague points out, to a sentence that states the opposite rule.
6: Well, Your Honor, in the 2017 case of SCA hygiene, the Supreme Court made clear that it did not decide the discovery versus injury rule question in this. So I think that we can read that language, not as not passing until this moment, but that it did not pass in that decision more generally. And that's why three circuits have held that Petrella did not affect the discovery rule. The Second Circuit in SoM said that we should give this court, uh, we should give the repeated direction that the court was not passing on the discovery rule question serious weight. Likewise, the Ninth Circuit in Stars said that it would be difficult to square the court deciding case involving a plaintiff deliberately sleeping on their legal rights with one where the plaintiff reasonably could not know about their rights, which is the typical discovery rule case. And likewise, the Fifth Circuit in Martinelli held that it, it didn't govern in large part because it left room for claims of copyright infringement to accrue like those of late degrees or those of fraud. Does it
0: leave room for those? I mean the. I hate to keep bringing this up, but the court says that the defendant is insulated from liability from all early, for all earlier infringements, right, occurring more than three years before the suit is filed. That, and you're asking us to hold that you can receive damages for injuries occurring more than three years before when the suit was filed. Isn't that just exactly the opposite of what the court said?
6: No, Your Honor, I don't think so. And this gets to that second issue of the damages bar. We should understand that look-back language as both the Ninth and 11th circuits have. We should understand that as simply operationalizing the injury rule. Because ultimately, whether you you look at the claim moving forwards from injury to three years or backwards from three years, in injury rule cases, that damages bar is going to be the same thing as that three-year accrual period. Likewise, in Petrella, the Supreme Court explicitly acknowledged that there are two controlling time prescriptions in the Copyright Act. First is how long a copyright runs. And second is Section 507B's limitations period. And to repeat that text of the provision, there's no reference to the complaint and there's no reference to damages. No civil action shall be maintained under the provisions of this title unless it is commenced within three years after the claim accrues. Ultimately, Edison's position runs up against the plain text of Section 504. Section 504B allows for the actual damages suffered as a result of the infringement, as well as any profits of the infringer and alternatively for statutory damages, which are not at issue in this case, but I think still illustrate the point. But
4: but Section 504 also says, and I quote, except as otherwise provided by this title. So if 507 carves out a limitation on what can be recovered as damages, isn't that otherwise provided by the title?
6: Your Honor, as, as I just pointed out, I think that the plain text of Section 507B references neither damages nor the day the complaint was filed. And so I think a plain reading of Section 507B doesn't get that far. And I think if you want to look at that provision of Section 504A, which makes reference to other sections, it's still given effect by Section 505, which allows for the judge to impose full costs as well as attorneys' fees. And explain
4: that. What, what? How does the provision regarding costs and fees? How does
6: that cut here? It, it cuts here insofar as Section 504, the as otherwise provided, it's not superfluous because it makes reference to. It's an implicit reference to Section 505, which allows the to recover beyond just the damages.
4: Well, but it's as otherwise provided in this title. It doesn't say as otherwise provided in the next section, so it's not limited to any particular section. It's limited to to title 17. 507 appears in title 17, does it not? Yes, it does, Your Honor. My my point is simply, I, I understand your argument that 507 doesn't reference damages and therefore shouldn't be read to limit damages, but if we were to read it that way, you're making an independent argument that 504 doesn't limit damages, but it does if 507 does. In other words, doesn't it just come back to the same question of whether
6: 507 limits damages? 504 doesn't do any independent work. So just so I understand your question, Your Honor, are you saying that if, if you interpret Section 507 as Edison does, then that would nullify, based on Section 504, then that it is other, Then it is
4: otherwise provided in Title 17, and 504 does nothing for you. That's my point.
6: Your Honor, that might be the case, but the Supreme Court didn't decide that in the That that three-year look-back language is better understood as operationalizing the injury rule, and it wasn't necessary to the outcome. Remember, the outcome was simply that latches could not apply to an otherwise timely copyright suit. And the Supreme Court made clear, uh, I'd like to quote just from Petrella on this instance, that uh, I'd like to quote simply that the the latches period is defined, the, the latches, or Congress simply set up Three year statutes of limitations. Latches can never infringe upon those three year latches, uh, that three year statute of limitations. And if there are no further questions, we ask that this court affirm. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank Thank you. you. I believe we have some rebuttal time.
2: Honors, we'd like to make a couple points, one with respect to the employee independent contractor, and a couple of points with availability of damages. Our friends have suggested that Oliver experienced little to no control from Edison with regard to his work, and they suggest that comprehensive control is the proper standard for the right to control factor. The right to control factor is not so limited. First, This standard that they suggest, comprehensive control, is from a case called Horror Inc. about screenwriters, where the Supreme Court explicitly notes, excuse me, the Second Circuit explicitly notes that it is a highly collaborative context between creative professionals, so the bar for proving the right to control is much higher when the nature of the work is more collaborative. And with respect to this particular case, this Edison and Miller exercised far more control than they often did over their own employees. The record points out that lower-level employees were also acting as human resource management, but in this particular case, they required him to only work at the location. On page five of the record, it says she reviewed his work. We- she reviewed his work every week. She did weekly timesheets, she approved 24-hour access, and with respect to his decisions about C++ and Citadel, she gave conditional yeses in response to further constraints.
4: Can you comment on the fact that Mr. Oliver, while working on Citadel, also was, I think, still teaching and working on various other, for various other entities, doesn't that go to the, the level of control and doesn't that strongly suggest that he was operating as an independent contractor rather than an employee? In other words, the simultaneous employment elsewhere suggests that he's not a full employee of, of Edison.
2: May I have leave to answer your question? You may. That, it, that in the restatement is a separate factor that does not go specifically to right to control. It is not a two-pronged inquiry under the understanding of the common law agency test. And with respect to the second issue, there are two ways for you to for us to win, either vote for instant injury or the damages bar, which is finding binding Supreme Court precedent. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank you, the court will be in recess. All rise.
0: Please be seated. Well that was excellent. We all, we had such a great time. Uh, I don't know if you felt the same way, but we loved it. Uh, I think uh, all three judges uh, agreed that we would love to have this sort of briefing and this sort of argument every day uh, in our work. It was excellent across the board, and it might be easier to decide this case on the merits than to decide who among you uh, was the best. Uh, but we have done it. So, what we're going to do is we'll announce the winners, and then each judge will give a little bit of feedback um, to the group and to each of you individually. Okay? So, our winning team is Team 18, Appleese Counsel, Mr. Oliver. And our best oralist is also from that team, Aquila Maya Yekel. Is that best? <laughs> and I think Judge Nathan is going to start us off. Sure. Um, it- absolutely echo
3: that the quality of the briefs and the quality of the You're, argument. You are echoing. Echoing. <laughs> uh, to, to really drive that, that point home. Um, the quality of the briefs and the quality of the arguments across the board were uh, as good as we see in the circuit, and it would be delightful to have any of you uh, appear before me in the Second Circuit and, and all of us. Um, just to highlight some things that I thought Everyone generally um, did really well uh, that that particularly stood out in the oral argument. The first, and I think most important, was the conversational nature of the project. You were really listening to what the questions were and then doing your best to help us see the case the way you saw the case, so um, your answers were responsive. A lot of times um, litigants are really reluctant to sort of give a yes or no answer to a yes or no question because they want to, you know, if an answer is yes, but they want to do the but first and then the yes. And judges want answers. Um, We're there to get answers and we want answers and we want to know that you aren't just dodging, but that you have a, a sort of, you know, a genuine and authentic answer to the question. And I thought you all did that extremely well. Um, you're also good at, and I, I like this in writing and I like it orally, providing, and you did this in your writing and you did it orally, is providing the reader or the listener a roadmap. And I think each of you, to, a, uh, to the number, would get uh, at some point a question, you'd say, Your Honor, I have two responses to that, number one, number two. So you're, you're giving us that visual outline for how you're gonna answer that helps us organize the information as it's coming in and also makes us wait uh, to get both parts of of the answer. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Um, You all had an incredible mastery of the record, which is, I mean, not factually complicated, but there are a lot of facts um, and a lot of factors um, and a mastery of a lot of cases that, that really come into play and how to think of them. Some of you cited to page numbers of Supreme Court opinions, telling us who the author is, what the context is, incredibly important. Um, And you had had poise, you had comfort, you had confidence, but not overconfidence. You weren't just reading your answers, again, just to come back to the initial point. You were engaging in a conversation with us to help us get answers to our questions and see the case, whether it's facts or law, um, in a way that that brings us uh, along with you and to your side. And all of you did that just wonderfully. So, congratulations.
4: Um, well, Judge Nathan just made my job easy because I wrote a list of things to say and she just said them all. Um, so uh, I would just basically double what she just said um, and I would maybe just add one other which is I thought you all did an extraordinary job of dealing with bad facts and bad law. I think that's one of the most challenging things as an advocate and um, it's rare that you know, everything cuts your way, and certainly this case was obviously designed not to cut clearly in either direction, and so there's some bad precedent, there's some bad facts for both sides. Yeah, and I thought, and we obviously pressed you on those, and I thought you all did an incredibly good job of addressing with addressing them and saying, number one, you know, essentially even if we lose on that point, here's why, you know, we nonetheless win um, and and or spinning it in your favor and and, and your direction. So I think you did that both in your written work but especially well in your oral advocacy today. Um, I would also, uh, as part of the conversational uh, point, I mean really the best oral arguments you see, like it's almost hard to tell that it's an oral argument. It almost appears as a conversation. The most effective advocates are those who are just really kind of parrying and in conversation but nonetheless have a very clear kind of path and and, trajectory that they want to go on. They just use the questions to to get at it, but it seems very natural. Um, Part of that is just comfort, and the more you do it, the more conversational you'll be. Um, Some of it is knowing your record cold, and I think all of you did that. Um, I thought, Mr. you did a great job, for instance, of referencing prior questions and also calling us by name that's always flattering um, uh, and also use of humor I think uh, that's a very effective thing to, to kind of lower the temperature a little bit and, and really be you know in sync with with the judges yeah but that's just to underscore the point that I think the most effective oral advocates are those who are you know really almost seem like they're not doing heavy work and heavy lifting when in fact they they very much are um, all of you were extraordinary I mean truly I double what as Nathan said, which is we would be lucky to have lawyers uh, as skilled as all of you in our courtrooms each and every day. Um, we don't, sadly. Um, but you're well on your way, all, all four of you, to really extraordinary careers. And, and I wish you the best of luck and congratulate you on getting this far. So, Yes,
0: yes congratulations to all four of you for uh, getting this far. We clearly see why you did and how you did. Um, Invite you to please come argue the Fourth Circuit uh, whenever you're available. Um, I don't have much to add because I agree with what Judge Nathan Andrew furman said. I'll point out for each one of you. I think um, Hunter, I was very impressed when you uh, came back to uh, you gave us off the top of your head a record site about a particular point, or maybe it was in a brief. And you know that's some people think, oh, that's flashy. It shows that I know everything. But one thing it does is it builds trust with the court the court can know that you have a comprehensive understanding of the record, right? You know exactly what was in there and where it is and why it matters, and that helps the court uh, trust what you're saying. Um, Audrey, I thought you had an excellent framework um, for how we're supposed to approach this. The top, the 507 question, you know, it was two questions, but then each question within that had multiple parts that are hard to encapsulate in one, one statement at the beginning but you had a framework ready for us and you returned to that and you had the opportunity in a way that i thought was um, was very facile going back and forth between the questions and answering and coming back to your framework um, uh, aquila i thought you were had a very conversational style as judge Furman pointed out you um, listen to the questions and then even came back to answer, I think at one point you answered Judge Nathan's question and then said, but to come back to what Judge Furman asked, here's, and it's, you know, we like to know that people are listening to us. You're not just ready with, these are the three points I have to say, and I'm gonna say them, you know, no matter what happens at oral argument. It is important to have points that you have to get out, uh, but I thought you did a good job of actually listening to what matters to the court, and that's how you persuade, right, is knowing what matters to the court and having uh, answers to those questions. And uh, being able to do it in a way where we feel like You know, we're sitting around a table and we're all trying to figure it out, right? Um, And I thought you had a great style in that way. Uh, And then, Sean, I thought you were well prepared with answers to some of the tough questions. Um, As Judge Furman was pointing out, there are a lot of sticky points on the 507 issue. Um, The Supreme Court, I'm sure, will sort it all out for us very soon. (laughs) Uh, We'll send them, you know, a transcript of this argument. (laughs) but uh, you were ready um, with answers to some of those most difficult questions, and they, it seemed seamless uh, that you weren't uh, you know trying to think about it on the fly, and you understood uh, what we were getting at, and, and we noticed that. So uh, you all were excellent, uh, we really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you for letting us uh, be a part of this. I'll turn it over to whoever's in charge here. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations.